0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 with Pastor John King. Good morning, you guys. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I, f- I know that a few of you uh, speaking to you, it sounds like it was a great gathering of family and friends and plenty to eat and so much to be thankful for. Um, today we're going to uh, begin chapter 4 of 1st Thessalonians, chapter 4 of 1st Thessalonians. Um, we concluded chapter 3, if you recall from last week. Uh, we're going to, by the way, we're going to be in verses 1 through 8, as you can see. But as as we closed last week, we, we concluded with Paul's main prayer points. And there were three of them, if you were taking notes. First of all, he prayed for the church that they would have uh, a personal fellowship with the Lord, that would be a priority in their lives. He also prayed that there would be an increased love for others. And then he finished with this uh, cry for personal holiness, this prayer for personal holiness in, that, in the period of time that we live in, whether the Lord returns or whether your life ends. Um, and so today when we go into uh, how to apply this prayer, we're going to start with that area of personal holiness. Now perhaps you took to heart my challenge last week to apply these prayers to one another. You know, kind of a built in prayer list, if you don't know specifics. You can always pray that your brothers and sisters uh, would have their time for, spend with the Lord, their time in devotions. You can always pray that their love for others would increase, not decrease, not diminish. And then of course, personal holiness. And I, you might ask, well, why would I ask that question? If you, if you guys need a Bible, we have uh, Bibles. If anybody doesn't have a Bible, raise your hand. Somebody will bring you a Bible. Uh, but uh, why would I ask that question? Uh, why would I challenge you to bring that prayer, make that a regular part of your prayers? And the answer is in verse 13 of last week's message. He says, so that he may establish your heart's blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Knowing that the Lord will return someday should be a powerful motivation for our desire to live holy lives, not in fear, but to be established or strengthened by the Lord as we wait for his return. In 1834, a British pastor named Edward Mote wrote a famous hymn, we've done it here before, it's called The Solid Rock. And the first verse says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then the chorus or the refrain, you know it, it says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. This great hymn of assurance is the type of thing we need to keep in mind as we move into today's topic. And that is a topic that's uh, not very popular uh, from the pulpit, but we're going to cover it. It's extremely important. And that's our need, our command from the Lord to walk in sexual purity. These final two chapters of First Thessalonians, now provide us with a, some practical instructions. And what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to encourage and he prays that not only would they be getting by, you know, I, I've stamped my, you know, my Christian passport or I've checked the block and I'm a Christian and I, I go to a church. He's not asking for that. He's, he's actually saying, we, you and I, need to excel in things like holiness, hope and love. Those things should all be on the increase. And so, as I said earlier, we're going to begin today's message with the subject or the topic of holiness. So follow along as I read the passage, 1st Thessalonians 4 verses 1 through 8. Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus, that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, and that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the Avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God does not call, not reject man, but God, who is also the Giver, has given us His Holy Spirit. And let's pause for a quick prayer. Father, we thank You for bringing us here today. Uh, Lord every day that you call us together in your name is a special day and a special time when we study your word we know that it has the power to change our lives we know that it has the power to uh just to give us the the spiritual nourishment that only you can provide and so Lord I thank you for uh once again the uh the privilege of bringing your word Uh, speaking it out publicly, and teaching Your Word. And may the word that I say, the words that I use, not be from me, but be from You, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we ask that You go before us now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're going to start some practical application here. But before we do that, Paul wants to give kind of an overarching uh, how-to, a how to live it out. And so in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians, you see he starts off and he says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. You know, and he's really... uh, First of all, he, notice he says fellow believers. So again, we talk about our family, a family of God together here in this building. And I know in a general sense, the family of God is spread throughout the world. But when the family of God comes into a big place like this, a living room, a larger living room, if you will, uh, there's a special time and it's a special gathering for us. And so when he says, finally my brethren, he's kind of putting a little bit of responsibility on one, on one another, to be looking out for one another. To care for one another. In the New Living Translation he says, finally, dear brothers and sisters. And so that's how we should, you know, look at one another. Now I want to say that he used the word finally. This is not signifying the very end of the letter. He's just trying to direct their attention now to a new subject. And so obedience, we learn right away, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, obedience is a family privilege. It's something that we get to do together. It's not just an individual responsibility, but it's a family privilege. Next, we see he says, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus. Obedience to Christ is also a blessed obligation. We have an obligation to do the things that the Lord is calling. And, and he's, he's saying it with words like urge and exhort, or Old Testament, would be, or uh, New, uh, King James Version would be, I beseech you, or I beg you. Uh, Parakaleo, exhort. You know, you have that, that, that power of the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I exhort you, or I admonish you by the Lord Jesus to recognize that obedience to Christ is an obligation. To blessed obligation. So obedience is a family privilege. It's a blessed obligation. And finally he says, obedience to the Lord can always increase. Yep. Obedience to the Lord can always increase. He, he says that you should abound more and more. This is to excel or to exceed what we were saying earlier. And more and more, uh, you know, uh, Adam Clark wrote this. Uh, he's an old, um, uh, he was a, uh, a Puritan commentator from the past century. And speaking about more and more, he said, God sets no bounds to the communications of His grace and Spirit to them that are faithful. And we mentioned, of course, this morning in our song, uh, His mercy is more, that that increase. And so God sets no uh, bounds to His grace and the Spirit to them that are faithful. But he says, and there are also no bounds to the graces so that there should be none to exercise those graces. In other words, um, no man, he says, can ever feel that he loves God too much. And that's pretty common sense, right? I mean, can you all say, uh, you know, I love God too much. I need to back off on my love for God. Um, Or or can we say that I love others too much for God's sake? I mean, we we just can't make that claim. And so we are in, in our in reality, if if you're a Christian, we are always to be pointed in the direction of increase and more when it comes to loving God and loving others. We know that we haven't arrived, but that's not an excuse to stay the way we are. And he says, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, so to receive something, you know, is, is, he's passing it down. Remember, they spent a very short time with this church. They taught them quite a bit. They were very uh, gratified and, and grateful that they, they remained faithful to the Lord in spite of the, uh, the, uh, the persecution that they were uh, enduring. And he reminds them that, you know, we've, we've spoken these things to you. They, they taught them the basics of Christianity in a very short time, and they hadn't finished their instruction, which is why he's writing this letter. He says, for you ought to walk. Now, this is how you and I are to regulate our lives, how we are to conduct our lives. He's always using these metaphors, you know, our walk through this life, our walk through this world, our journey. But notice he says, and to please God. You know, we're going to, as long as our hearts beating, we're going to walk. We're going to live this life. We're going to get up every day. We're going to go to work. We're going to do all the things that we're called to do, whether we go to school, whether we go to work. We're going to eat. We're going to, you know, go to sleep. We're going to continue that cycle. We're going to walk through life. The question is, is do you desire, and we should, if you're a Christian, that your walk through life is marked by a desire to please God not pleasing yourself, that's easy to do. That's natural to you. And so Paul's explaining it. Hebrews uh, chapter 11 verses 5 and 6 talks about the Old Testament, uh, you know, Saint Enoch. He was, you know, he was raptured. He was one, he was the first one to be, to be called up into heaven. It says, uh, Hebrews 11:5 says, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was, and was not found. In other words, where'd he go? Well, he was taken up because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. And notice his testimony was that he pleased God. Now the writer of Hebrews reminds us, he says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So having received, having the the, the salvation in Jesus Christ, then we need to walk to please God. It never just stops there. Warren Wiersbe asks a few questions, good questions. He says, how do we know what pleases God? How do we know what pleases an earthly father? He answers a question with a question. How do you please your earthly father? Well, by listening to him and and by living with him. As we read the Word and as we fellowship and worship and service, you and I get to know the heart of God. And this opens us up to the will of God. Amen. So important. So how do you please God? Well, you spend time with Him. You know, you, you, you listen to Him. You study His Word. You let Him live, you know, in your heart and come to life within you. Notice though in verse 2, Obedience to the Lord cannot be separated from God's Word and the person of Jesus. You cannot, you know, say, oh, I love God, but I don't need to go through the Son. No, it comes through Christ. It cannot be separated. And he says, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So they gave commandments. They explained to them what was going on, and, and their need, you know, to change. This was foreign to their culture at the time. Think about it. Most people that came to faith in those days were adults. You know, a lot of times we talk about raising our children, raising our families in the Lord. But a lot of them came as adults. And some of you, I know myself, uh, may have the same testimony. And so you had a lot of living going on, and there was a lot that the Lord had to do in your life to uh, to redeem you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know, these these Christians they had a lot going for them. I mean, Paul's already commended them several times for the positive report that Timothy brought back. So if you've been following through the letter, you know that Timothy brought back a report of how they were standing fast in the faith; they were being faithful. And they had accepted the Gospel and Jesus' commandments. Uh, They were standing strong in persecution for their new faith. But Paul also knew that they could be easily sidetracked by the surrounding culture. And this is where it starts to really hit home here. You know, if if so far in this message you just, uh, you know, you've decided to take a nap, now's the time to wake up. Because this is where it starts to hit home for us. You know, Corinth, where Paul was writing, was the ancient sin city. We know it today as Las Vegas. Many songs have been written about Las Vegas. But so was Thessalonica. And Paul's pastoral influence was like that of a coach in a sense, right? Because he's saying, you guys are all on the same team up there in Thessalonica, this small church, and you can excel in holiness, despite what the culture wants to tell you. You know, I had a few thoughts while well, you study for these messages, and perhaps you remember your aggressive, rebellious person that you once were. Perhaps your testimony is that you were, uh, you know, a, a dreadful sinner, like mine was, my life was. I was lost like a man living under the sun, doing whatever I wanted to do. and. We had this aggressive and rebellious thought. You know, if we didn't say it out loud, we would think it. And that would be, how dare you tell me how to live my life? How dare you tell me how to live my life? That would be what I would, my defense mechanism or my rebellion against God, when somebody tried to speak truth into my life. Whether it was a parent or, you know, somebody who was in authority, You know, my my heart was rebellious. And then, you know, we hear that today. We hear it in a a greater, uh, you know, a louder voice than ever, perhaps. How dare you tell me how to live my life? How dare you tell me who I can love? That's another thing we hear in today's culture, isn't it? Referring to choices, sexual choices. So there is that obvious, aggressive, rebellious You know, coming directly against God. But there's also a passive rebellion. And you see this in some who may have grown up in the church. And they will tell you that their upbringing in the church was, well, I've never been good enough. Every single Sunday, every time I went to church, the pastor yelled at us and told us you could never, you know, it was always hellfire and brimstone. And so I'm never good enough. But what you do when you take upon that attitude is you become a self-victimizer you make yourself the victim and what you're really doing is putting yourself above god when you do that and then we also have for many is the paralyzing regret for past sins you know i've gone too far down this road how can i be saved i remember telling a guy you know a bible thumper friend of mine in the coast guard who was witnessing to me and speaking to me in a very loving way but very matter of fact and you know we had our conversation and, and I would, you know, oftentimes tell them, you know, you don't realize, Skip, that if I set foot in that chapel, I'm going to get struck by lightning. Because I am, I have gone way too far in my life. I've done whatever I wanted to do. You, you don't even know the first of it. And I've committed too many sins and I'm too far gone. But you see, these are the types of things that when we allow our culture to come in and to possess us and to take control of our lives, You know, whether it's aggressive rebellion or passive rebellion, whether we want to be self-victimized, or whether we want to be paralyzed in our past sins. The enemy uses those to prevent us from going to the place he desires, the Lord desires for us. And so this is part of the battle that we all have to go through. The moral climate of Paul's day was famously unhealthy and decadent. Sexual expression that was limited to the boundary line of marriage was either unheard of or rejected. Ancient writer Demosthenes, he expressed the general view of sex in the ancient Roman Empire. He says, quote, We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. And we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes end quote. And so that was the prevailing, you know, word in the culture, even from the highest levels of culture, even from the highest authorities. And the same decadent moral climate has invaded our culture. I could go far and long with examples of the downward spiral our culture has been in for the past five or six decades. Most of us have lived through that. And we don't lack information. Now as Christians, think about it, if you're in a Bible teaching church, and you study the Bible, and you read passages like this, you don't lack the information needed to know what pleases God. And so we've been given these commandments through Jesus and His Word. So we need to really recognize that the things the Lord says to us is not a man speaking them. It's not a pastor. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I are not unfamiliar with the consequences of immorality, either from our past rebellion, or the constant evidence that we see around us, or from the temptation that is within us. And so it is as Christians, we are to witness to the culture. You say, "How you know, how, I can't, nobody wants to hear the Gospel. Well, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, whoever you are, if you're married, you're testimony to your culture, our culture, is the fact that you're faithful to your spouse, that you remain together, pure. Your faithfulness and your message to the culture, if you're kids in here, uh, teens, is your purity. Or in the negative sense, we become, and you can say, well, what about all these people we know about in church who have fallen, these pastors who have given in to sexual temptation? What about the high rates of pornography viewing that happens within the church? What about hookup culture that is, you know, kind of taken over in the teen and young adult world? And then we all have stories of all kinds of sexual abuse. So we know that it's, it's almost equal, it's almost just as much in the church as it is in society. And so we are challenged. And the Lord is challenging you and I that to remember that these commandments come from Jesus. And it's not like we haven't been given the ability to exercise the commandments. We've been given the Holy Spirit of God. In our own strength, we can never defeat the enemy in our own flesh. So the Lord is saying, saying to you and I, brothers and sisters, he, He's really saying that we need to make use of the tools that we've been given to live a life that He desires. Now we come into verses three through eight, and we know, now He says, uh, we're looking at holiness, and we're asking, He's asking, the, or He's really answering the question, how do I make it personal? How do I make it personal? And really uh, the, the answer to that question is, you and I need to embrace sexual purity as God's will for your life. You know, oftentimes I need to know, you know, pastor, I don't know what God's will is for my life. And we're speaking of the future. We're speaking of, you know, where I'll work, who I will marry, what I will do. What does the Lord want me to do? Well, here it is. He says here in, in verse 3, for it is the will of God. So you have it written out for you, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So purity starts with a desire to please the Lord, and to do His will. So that's, you know, we're now we're kind of getting a little bit closer. It says, for it is the will of God. It's what God wishes to be done by us. It's His gracious design. It's His determined resolve for each and every one of us, the will of God one writer said this. He said, the ancient Greeks and Romans believed that the will of God could only be discovered through divination. You know, their pagan practices. But Paul teaches that God has made the mystery of His will known. And when we went through Ephesians, Ephesians 1 verse 9, we learned that God has revealed the mysteries, not only of the church, but the things in the will of God. And so he also instructs believers about the will of God so they can know how to please Him. Remember, we're trying to answer the question, how do I please God? And Paul is getting very specific. And he says, well, for, first of all, let's talk about sexual purity. You want to please God, this is how you do it. And he's referring, of course, we see sanctification. The word sanctification, it's, uh, it's separation to God and away from sin and worldliness. That's the process that you and I are going through as Christians. And it's a lifelong process of becoming holy. As we said, you haven't arrived. As you and I dedicate our lives to serving God by loving Him, moral purity then increases. And that should be your testimony. Yes. Chuck Swindoll explains it, you know, for sanctification, for if, you're, if you're curious, or Bible students. Sanctification has the past aspect of, that all believers have and they've been set apart at salvation. It's a one-time declaration of righteousness based on a once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 10.10, if you're writing that, taking notes. But he also says, sanctification also has a future aspect. And that's when believers, both resurrected and living, will be transformed from mortal to glorious immortal bodies that will be made holy and blameless. And that's in Ephesians 5.27. But here, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul emphasizes the present and ongoing sanctification, the process by which believers are made progressively more holy as they are set apart from evil and increasingly consecrated toward good. So purity starts with a desire to please God, please the Lord, and to do His will. Purity also demands that you and I continually keep away from sexual sin. Continually keep away. It's an active walk. He says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. To abstain means to hold yourself off, to stay away or keep away from. The word sexual immorality is really just one word in the Greek. It's pornea the King James Version refers to it as fornication. And this is any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That, inc- that covers everything. And I'm not going to give you the list, because you already know, if you know that it's any and all. And let me say that this is an area of clear certainty. There's no gray areas here. You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to analyze the meaning of the words or try to soften it up by pointing out how normalized it is in culture. And one of the reasons I don't want to give a big, long list of these things is because there are parents in here who are raising their children. And I'm going to leave that up to you. That is your primary job, is to teach your children. Now in Paul's time, this uh, ethics, if you will, this study of morality, was not the subject of religion. And if you study the ancient cults and religions, you realize, obviously, because they were so steeped in sexual practice. But it was a discussion, you know. They were philosophers, and they would talk back and forth about what was right and what wasn't. But according to Paul, the Gentiles, when he refers to them, they lacked the standards regarding sexual immorality. And we'll see that here uh, when we get to verse 5. Worshippers of the goddess Aphrodite, for instance, the goddess of sexual pleasure, indulged in all kinds of sexual immorality, including prostitution. And some of these new believers in Thessalonica may have taken part of such activities. It was part of the culture that they were in, and that's why Paul is addressing this so directly with them. So purity demands that you continually keep away from sexual sin. Purity also continues as you live your life by faith, or the faith conviction, that what I said earlier, you can actually control your body. You're not having to do these things. You have the power to control your body. He says in verse 4, he says that you should know how to possess His own vessel in sanctification and honor. What Paul is saying is you should know how because you have the Holy Spirit within you. You should know how already. I shouldn't have to explain this to you. Those, you know, as we have victory over the sin and temptations in our lives, we know, that we know how. So we can't make excuses. You know, it was my, whatever excuse you try to, to bring in. You know, your chemistry, your body chemistry, your hormones, your age, whatever it is. He says that you should know how to possess his own vessel. Now to possess means to gain mastery over your soul, your body instead of giving way to adverse circumstances. That's one definition. Simply put, that each of you should learn to control your own body, control it. And he says, he specifically says of his own vessel, this Greek word is skuos, and it can refer to various objects or things, but here it probably, most people agree, functions as a metaphorical reference to the human body. Believers must use their bodies in a manner that pleases God, and they do that in one way, is by abstaining from sexual immorality. And so, should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Sex in marriage should be an honorable thing. It should be an honorable um, thing that happens between a husband and a wife. So notice, as I said, that this is very personal. This is very close to home. It's an uncomfortable subject for most. One writer put it this way. He said, pleasing God means much more than simply doing God's will you know, going through the motions. It is possible to obey God and yet not please Him. Interesting. How do we know that? Well, look at Jonah. He points to Jonah as a case in point. Jonah obeyed God and did what he was commanded, but his heart was not in it. You can go through the motions. God blessed His Word, but He could not bless His servant. Interesting. So Jonah sat outside the city of Nineveh, angry with everybody, including the Lord if you can understand Jonah's story. Ephesians 6.6 6 says, our obedience should not be with eye service as man pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Our youth group recently attended youth camp down in Fayetteville. And the theme of the camp was vessels of honor from 2 Timothy 2. And here we're going to see when we go through the book of uh, Timothy the letters, Paul was instructing Timothy from his responsibility as a pastor to remain pure to his calling and to flee from temptation. And here's the verse if you're interested, Second Timothy two, twenty through twenty two. Um, he says here, look look what we say, he says, But in a great house there is not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay for some honor and some for dishonor. So again, it's talking about the choice of how you use your body to please God. In verse 21 he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And then the key verse here, verse 22, Flee also from youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So again, to please the Lord is how we use our bodies. So purity continues as you live by faith that you can control your body. Purity also requires that you and I cultivate a different passion than unbelievers. A different passion. You know, God has delivered you. He's cleansed you from all righteous unrighteousness. You are saved. You are going to heaven. And now the responsibility starts to come on you, not by your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit to cultivate a different passion than what's around in the culture. And that's the passion to know God, simply. You want to know God more and more. And he says in verse 5, not in passion of lust, which is a desire for what is forbidden, could be sexual, could be other things like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we are to cultivate a different passion. And that's why we come and we spend our time. That's why we have our devotions. That's why we have our prayer time. That's where we seek to please the Lord. And our response to our desire to please the Lord is not so that He will love us more. How, how much more could He love us? He gave His only Son for us on the cross. It's so that we would grow in Him, that we could respond unto Him with gratitude, that song we sang. Oh, well, we sang that song. It's a wonderful song. I love singing that song. But think about what it means. Think about what gratitude means. Not just a cool sounding song. We praise the Lord again and again for His goodness, and we want to live to please Him. And he says in verse 6 that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as also we forewarned you and testified. You see, the Word of God not only brings us truth and grace and help and hope, but it also comes with a warning. It always comes with a warning when it comes to these matters. And he says, don't do this. Because there are consequences to your decision, if you won't make the will of God your passion. If you won't make knowing God your passion. And so, when you or I decide to cultivate lust instead of presence with God, instead of loving God, and by that I mean fantasizing, I mean viewing porn or reading sensual books, and the list goes on and on. We're forgetting whose child we are. We're trading God's best for the world's worst. This grieves God because He has sacrificed so much and provided us with the spiritual resources to be victorious. When it's unfolded, you know, when evil really starts to show its face, you notice how it's more and more present? You notice how it's more and more showing its face? And I don't, I'm not going to go into the details. But it's ugly and it's evil, no matter what it is. It's out there. And so purity, for you and I, involves an ongoing choice to love others rather than take advantage of them. When you think of some of the worst, like child sex trafficking, or prostitution, or taking advantage. He says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Now he's talking about what goes on among the church. And we know about sexual abuse in the church, sadly. We know about infidelity within the church from from professing believers. And he says, he warns us, not take advantage and defraud to overreach, to exploit. And purity must be viewed for you and I in light of God's judgment. God's judgment, not only that, his, his purpose and his presence. Because he says it right here, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. The Lord will punish. He will hold us accountable. And whether you stand before God in judgment, because you never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will have nobody to stand in your defense. But even as a Christian, we are told in the Bible, we're taught that there will be a judgment seat of Christ as well. And even, even before then, if, when you and I sin, you know, we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit of God, we feel like we're, we're, we're distant from the Lord. And He calls us into repentance. He calls us to come to Him and ask for forgiveness. And He is faithful to forgive us of our sins. But there is, there is something that can happen. God can avenge us even while we're living as Christians when we choose to live a sinful life. Now in the Old Testament, these things, as sexual immorality would be death by stoning. But in the modern sense, it's shame, it's public disgrace, it's loss of family and broken relationships. Even when you're forgiven, you know, the the pain of forgiven sin because of poor, you know, bad decisions will haunt us. It's just a fact of life. And yes, there is grace. So Paul goes on and he says... He really wants to define God's purpose for their life. And in verse 7, he says, "...for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness." Remember, these were people who were adults that lived in a sex-saturated culture. Many of them had engaged in these practices, but they are now holy and made right with God. They are made clean and washed. And he's just reminding them of their purpose. And that's the effect, this purification, this holiness. God invites you and I to share in His holiness. Isn't that amazing? First Peter 1, 13 through 16, he says, therefore, he writes, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So the Lord is inviting us to be holy. And then in verse 8, He says we are to remember God's indwelling presence. Remember, we said none of this is done by our own strength. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So, when you want to say, don't tell me how to live, how dare you tell me who to love, when you want to say that to somebody, you're not rejecting man, you're rejecting God. And if you're a Christian that's saying that, and you're walking in rebellion as a Christian, then you're despising God's call to purity. Purity. But you don't reject a human being, you reject God when you do that. So if you're hearing these words, if you're listening to this message online, remember they're from God, not the pastor, not another believer who is declaring Scripture. But God who has also given us His Holy Spirit. Because to refuse or despise God's commandments is to invite judgment and to grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you want to live your life that way, if you're a Christian? Do you want to live your life in rebellion to the Lord? Yes, you will struggle. This is not trying to insinuate the fact that some have struggled and will continue to struggle with some of these things. And that you continually go back and you seek forgiveness. But it's when you turn your face against God and you just decide simply, I'm tired of it. I'm just going to live my life the way I want to. When you decide to do that, you set yourself up. You invite judgment unto your life. Do you want to live that life? I don't think so. As we finish up today, I'd like to share a few thoughts on this. Uh, Most of you, or many of you perhaps are aware of the um, more recent controversies within the church and within culture about what's been called purity culture. Some of you may remember, purity culture is a term used to describe, uh, this is from GotQuestions.org, great webpage. Purity culture is the term used to describe the evangelical movement that promotes a biblical view of sexual purity as outlined in the verses we read today, 1 Thessalonians. The movement discourages dating in favor of courting and heavily promotes chastity before marriage. Tokens of purity culture include signed purity pledges, purity rings, and events like purity balls, dances where fathers and daughters, during which fathers pledged to be examples of purity and integrity for their daughters. I mean, that's a good thing. All this is good. I'm not here to critique. I just want to comment on it because it's become a problem. In the sense that a lot of people now have come out, not everyone by any means, but a lot of famous people by a man named Josh Harris, for instance, who wrote a book, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He grew up in this purity culture. And so there's been some criticism, there's been some controversy, and it's resulted in what we call deconstruction where you see Christians who were walking with the Lord, raising the Lord, all of a sudden they come out. And they're usually a lot of times it's celebrities that get all, you know, the, the worship, uh, the, the uh, Christian uh, uh, music, uh, contemporary Christian music artists. And they get all this commotion. They come out and say, ah, I'm not a believer anymore. I disavow my faith. And this guy, Josh Harris, he apologized for his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Some of you may remember that book. And he asked publishers to stop its publication. And in 2019, Harris then divorced his wife and declared that he was no longer a Christian. And so you have a lot of people that are coming out, and they're saying all these things. They say, well, this purity culture thing, you know, it's got some problems. Uh, We kind of, maybe it wasn't such a good idea. After all, you know, after all, look at Josh Harris. He was the poster boy for this movement. And, you know, everybody likes to cite statistics, you know. Some would say, well, it had really didn't change things, society continued to move on. This was in the 90s. What was happening in the 90s, some of you parents may remember, uh, super high rates of AIDS were taking place, teen pregnancy was becoming an epidemic in our country. And so they, the, the church, you know, rightly so, they were looking for ways to try and increase the purity and to do it as a culture. And so the Southern Baptist Convention was one of the big leaders in this purity culture. And some of you, I know, have raised your children or have been raised under that. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. In fact, if you're a parent today and you look around, I mean, I, all I can say is that hits keep coming, don't they? The hits keep coming because on the one hand, you may have misguided expectations. And you may be able to set your kids up for guilt and shame. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But on the other hand, you know, when I was growing up, I had the my parents were at risk for me learning about sex from Billy down the street. A kid my same age. But now you have this secular sex education and we know what that's all about. We know about all the books and all the controversy and all the things that are happening in the libraries around our nation. And so as parents today, you know, what do you, what do, you do about it? And so if, if perhaps this is you, you, I may be saying something that you've already, you already know. Hopefully I am. But what do you do about purity culture today, parents, as you raise your kids and you prepare them for the world that they're about to enter? I would say, first of all, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. The enemy is actively seeking to confuse and distort all aspects of God-ordained human sexuality. And you see it all around. The next thing I would recommend is that, parents, you talk truthfully to your kids. Because part of, if there is a problem with the purity culture movement, it was because of false expectations. And I've spoken to some who were a part of this. Choosing to remain pure for marriage is an expression of your worship and your honor for God, not a guarantee that your life will be so much better that bad things will never happen to you. And that's some of the things that were said during this purity culture movement. That if you only do what we say and live pure, your life is going to be perfect when you enter marriage. And that's where a lot of bitterness has come in. Because bad things will still happen even if you live to serve the Lord. And your, your desire to be obedient, kids, your desire to be obedient is not so much to honor your parents, which is God's commandment, is because you want to worship God with your purity. You want to do it. It's a personal decision that you're choosing to do. And you're putting Jesus at the top. You're 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 saying, "I want to worship. I want to be pure for the Lord," because they take it, you know, to these other other expectations. And we we tend to put too much on an equal plane. I mean, yes, we want to save sex for marriage. Yes, we want to enter pure into a pure relationship. Yes, we want to be obedient to our kid or to our parents. But Jesus needs to be the top, the main reason, because you need to recognize reality. And the next thing I would say, aside from that, speaking truthfully to your kids, is to take responsibility. Parents have an obligation to instruct their children. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in a way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. But kids, you have a responsibility as well. If you have reached the age of accountability, it is now your responsibility to want to please God because God will hold everyone responsible for their own sins. Remember, your sanctification, everyone here that's a believer, is the will of God, first and foremost. And remember that God has the final say. 1 Corinthians six eighteen and 20 says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have bought from, or you have from God, and you are not your own? You've given that up. You've surrendered your life to Jesus. You've given that up. For you were bought at a price, verse 20, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we're talking about the fact that our Heavenly Father loves us too much not to deal with our sin. And when we sow to our flesh, there will be a harvest of sorrow. We read about that in Galatians six, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows it to his flesh will also reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will be a spirit. Reap the spirit of everlasting life. Amen. Know of him. Remember this: that when King David, we know of him, when he committed adultery, he tried to cover his sin, but God chastened him severely. And when David confessed his sins, God forgave him, but God could not change the consequences. David reaped what he sowed, and his life and marriage wasn't very good and it was a very painful experience for him. And so really what Paul is trying to do, what, we're, what I'm saying today is that, you know, be very careful where you choose and how you choose to live your life. And I'd like to recommend this, this final word from um, Pastor Chuck Swindoll. He, talk, he talks about the choice. He says, like the Thessalonians, today you and I stand at a fork in the road. On the left is the path of immorality, on the right is the path of sanctification. To take the path of the world means you'll drift through society's fog of moral uncertainty. You'd begin by just dabbling with immorality. From there your conscience will become gradually dulled, no longer sensitive to the sinful acts, which you became then sinful habits. And this would lead you to obsession or addiction, when what were once habits would become your identity. You'd cross the line from being a person who commits immoral acts to being a, an immoral person. You'd no longer blush at sin or feel shame. And without repentance, you'd suffer the consequences of sin, and pain and destruction would ensue. That's the first, first path. The second path is that of sanctification being set apart by God, following His Spirit, living in a way that honors Him with your whole being. You draw power from the Spirit and are drawn into a deeper, more intimate relationship with Christ. As a result, there are no regrets, not looking over your shoulder for past secrets to catch up with you, no deep shame, no lingering guilt, no hypocrisy. Your obedience will result in greater confidence and habits of holiness and you'll be a living testimony for those you encounter who may not know Christ, or who may not be living the lives that honor Him. And he says, that's the second path. So the choice is yours. In fact, it's a choice you must make every day as you decide whether to follow the course of this world and its lusts, or pursues God's will for your life, which is your sanctification. And he finishes with a question, what will you choose? We're going to have a baptism ceremony uh, here shortly. I'd like to call the worship team up as we close in prayer. And we'll sing one more song. We're going to have a baptism here shortly. We're going to celebrate someone who's made a choice. Angela has made a choice to follow Jesus. She's received Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And she's going to declare that publicly. And so we we end today a, a difficult subject on a really positive note, if you will as we see some another uh, young child in the faith make a public declaration. So I'd invite you all to come after this song immediately. We'll go down and we'll have our baptism ceremony. Amen. Amen. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You, um, you spell things out for us. You have given us clear instruction of what you desire for for us, Lord. But you didn't just leave us hanging in in a heavy commandment. Uh, You know, maybe this message has stirred others, stirred people up from past memories and the past, maybe even abuse that they've experienced. And it's been a difficult message. And Lord, I just pray for those who have their hearts uh, stirred um, with bad memories from Uh, perhaps uh, terrible things that have happened in their past. And I also want to pray for those who are still hanging on to the guilt for the sins that they've committed, for the sexual immorality that they may have committed in their life. And Lord, I just pray that Your Spirit would speak to them and, and reassure each and every person here that it's never the end of the road. As long as we can breathe, we have the chance, we have the opportunity to receive Your grace and Your love. And it's just a simple matter of coming before You and being honest, and asking for forgiveness. And we know, Lord, that Your Word tells us that You are faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody who hears this message. Uh, We know the world we live in. We know that the destruction of the enemy that has taken place and continues each and every day around this world. But Lord, we know that you are greater than he who is in the world because you are in us. You've given your spirit to us. And that we can overcome the things, the temptations of the world. We know that Jesus, our Lord, was an example for that. That even though he was tempted in all ways, he did not sin. And so Lord, we know that we always have a choice whether to follow you and to obey you or not. But you've equipped us to overcome that. So we would ask, Lord, in your precious name, that you just simply go before us now. Heal our hearts, if that's what's need. Encourage us, Lord. Let us give thankfulness for all that you've done. Let us have hope for the future that you have for us, moment by moment. Fill us with your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.